Just Environmental Law, debating environmental law and justice for everyone. Brought to you by Peel UK in partnership with Planet Pod. Hello, my name is Amanda Carpenter, and I'm delighted to welcome you to this episode of Just Environmental Law, the public interest environmental law podcast. Peel is a student-run not-for-profit organisation which seeks to inspire lawyers and others to take up public interest environmental work. For this last episode in the series of podcasts produced by Planet Pod for Peel, I'm joined in our virtual studio today by a member of the Peel Committee, APRA Bennett, a third-year student studying physics with philosophy, who's had an interest in environmental law and has served as marketing and communications officer for Peel since 2019. APRA, welcome, and it's great to have you co-hosting this episode, as I know you've got a particular interest in the subject matter today. Hi, Amanda. Thank you for having me. And yes, I'm really looking forward to this episode. You've done a long stint for Peel. Well done <laughs> since 2019. <laughs> I know that you're, um, you're about to change committees and things, but I'm really intrigued as to why someone who's studying physics with philosophy is perhaps looking to be part of an environmental law group in the first place. Sure. Um, so I really care about climate change, as many people do. And um, after considering the many ways in which we could help stop it, um, first I started with science, which is why I do my degree. But after some thought, I thought that if we really want to change things, probably law will be better. Um, so I spent a year really looking into law, specifically environmental law. And then I stumbled on Peel um, and I thought that this probably would be the best way to learn more about it um, and then hopefully become an environmental lawyer. I've now changed my mind, but I still think that um, it's law is absolutely critical for us to actually do something properly about the environment. Well, you're a classic example of somebody whose interests just can't be categorised, can they? You, we, and that's the nature of the environment, isn't it? We don't need to put any of it into a box. So it's our ability to, to respond to different trends and different interests and bring them all together. And that's what makes a movement like Peel so powerful. Um, and today we've got a really interesting subject to discuss. It's environmental racism and it's linked to climate justice. I mean, it's a broad, really big topic, and I'm pretty certain we're not going to be able to cover it all. Um, but, but to give us an insight and at least start us off with a conversation that we might finish at a later date, we've got two really expert guests with us. Judy Ling Wong is an environmental activist, the president and UK director of the Black Environment Network, and a painter and a poet. To add to that, she sits on the advisory board of Gloucestershire Countryside and Community Research Institute, and is a co-founder of the National Park City Foundation. And I'm delighted to say that thanks to her tremendous efforts, London was declared a National Park City in 2019. Judy, thanks so much for being with us and a huge welcome to the podcast. I'm very pleased to be with everybody. You know, race and environmental justice is a really topical issue right now. It is indeed. And our second guest, Days Agaji, is a climate activist, a member of Extinction Rebellion, and she brings a different perspective to the conversation. She's currently in her second year of history and politics at Goldsmith University. And in 2019, she ran as an MEP, as an independent on behalf of Extinction Rebellion. Days, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So, Judy, I wonder if I could turn to you to perhaps start us off. Can you perhaps give us a sense of of what we mean when we talk about environmental racism and perhaps it's linked to environmental justice? Well, you know, environmental justice is about a much wider arena covering all inequalities from race, gender, trans issues, class, disability. It basically links all aspects of human rights, what happens to people to environmental damage. 
Whereas environmental racism is what it says on the tin, you know, it's about discrimination, exclusion, disempowerment, and all the negative impact on black and other racial groups, where actions are taken that result in drastic impacts on the places where they live and on the very lives of people themselves. And, you know, it's not just national. Within nations, of course, there are racial issues to address, but internationally, I think it's more obvious now that the talk of the legacy of colonialism and slavery is everywhere. We can see that it's historically enmeshed with racism, where whole countries and their people are subject to being trashed because the entire population or their environment is seen not to matter because of race. So constantly, even nowadays, up to the minute, we have problems where you know, issues of discrimination and so on, means that a lot of environmental impact is sort of exported to other countries. We so often export both our um, our damage, don't we? we? We export our rubbish and our waste and all the things that we in allegedly the developed West don't want out across the rest of the world and into the global South. And we also have, have got a legacy, as you say, of, of that colonial racism of actually stripping those countries bare of, of raw materials and, and minerals and things that we've chosen to take, leaving indigenous peoples um, the poorer for it. And, and I'm ashamed to say, I suspect this is still going on at quite a significant rate, despite the fact that we are no longer, well, one hopes we're no longer a colonial nation. I mean, for example, we've been discussing on, on Planet Pod recently the impact on Indigenous peoples in Colombia, where there has been you know, open-cast coal mining and the fact that the, the land is polluted and damaged and those Indigenous people are suffering directly ill health and, and discrimination. So it's an ongoing problem, isn't it? It isn't something that we can just look back to our colonial past and say, oh, well, we've, we've moved on from that. It's something that's absolutely ever-present in people's daily lives. Absolutely. I think that one of the big issues nowadays is about social consciousness, that ordinary people need to look at these so-called very ordinary things of life, what they see in their supermarkets and things like that. For example, cheap chicken, you know, everybody now has moved from red meat to chicken, very fashionable, you know. And uh, what is happening is that in order to get that cheap chicken, we're buying soya from Brazil. And so they're cutting down rainforests and large tracts of land, paying people very little to produce soy and so on, so that a rich nation like the UK can have cheap chicken. You know, it is outrageous. But a lot of people don't know these things. And increasingly, the stories are coming out, and we see how enmeshed we are in this kind of you know, racism and discrimination at a distance using exploitation in trade and so on. Napri, you've come to this from a from a non-legal background, haven't you? So what what drew your interest into the the, the legal aspect of the of the climate justice discussion? Because, you know, as a young black woman, you've got your own experience of both of both discrimination and racism, I'm sure. Yeah, you know, putting words into your mouth, but I have yet to meet somebody who has not experienced that, I'm mm-hmm. afraid. Yeah, so from the legal perspective, it was um, like probably a lot of people think that if you want to change how society runs, you have to change the law. So even if we had um, a scientific solution for um, climate change, which we have a lot, um, if the laws don't change, if policies don't reflect that, then we can't actually change anything, um, which is why it directly correlates to environmental racism, because um, if 
there are laws that are passed, but they don't actually reflect how society actually is, then environmental racism will flourish. Um, for example, um, something that we'll probably touch on later is how the law may, um, lawmakers might say, no, we weren't trying to be um, environmentally racist when we built a specific power plant in a community where communities of colour live. Um, the fact that they didn't intend to means that they think that they weren't being racist, which is not the fact. Um, they were, and um, the law needs to focus less on the intent and more on the actual product of what they've done. Um, so, yeah. Judy, you've been campaigning about this issue for some time, haven't you? I mean, you know, you founded and an are president of the Black Environment Network. And do you feel that there's any shift in the, the narrative or the dialogue at all over, over recent years? Or is your perception that things are as bad as they have ever been? There's an increase in consciousness. But I think that what the Black Lives Matter movement has brought us is that consciousness is not enough. Goodwill is not enough. Action is what is needed. So action at the level of law and action at the level of public atmosphere. Why I think this is so important is, for example, with Black Lives Matter, you know, we have been witnessing on video, and this is what digital, you know, advantages has brought. It's brought this terrible incident right into our lives because it's been recorded on a video. And people have emotionally reacted to it. And this emotion is driving an atmosphere for change that we have never seen. You know, right across the world, it's phenomenal. But it is this dual thing that needs to happen. After all, you know, if you think about it, George Floyd was killed, but there's a law that says you can't kill anybody. <laughs> you know, and this has been, been, the law has been, do not murder anybody there for a long, long time. But when the police does it, when there's a black person, so, for years and years, nothing was done. You know, the questions were not even raised when they went to court, the jury, and then acquitted them and all this sort of thing so that even the police practice didn't actually happen. It is then dependent on public outrage to put, push for change. So the combination of having law and then the next level of the enforcement of law that comes through everyone wanting it to be enforced. This is so important. Yeah, um, I completely agree. I think that there is definitely a rise in consciousness and people seeing the interconnectedness of everything, of how you can't disconnect colonialism with the way we treat the environment, how you can't disconnect the atrocities of slavery to then um, how treating people like that then makes it okay to treat the environment like that. Because once you've treated people like that, it doesn't stop um, once we start looking around to things around us. The second that we become disconnected to people around us and we think that it's okay to do things like that to people. What is a tree to us? You know, it, it, it means even less. Um, so, yeah, I completely agree with that. Yeah, there's an inherent um, arrogance, isn't there, really, about that disregard for, for the environment that then perhaps plays over into disregard for peoples or for, for different um, communities within, within our, our, our wider community. So that sense that, you know, people and things are expendable which seems to be driving some of that narrative. It's interesting, I think, Judy, that you make the, those, those connections because this is an intersectional issue, isn't this? This isn't an issue that just sits in a, in a race context or in a, in a climate context or a gender context or even a context in terms of, you know, social mobility or poverty. These things are all interconnected, aren't they? And 
and exacerbated by by people's kind of you know um, marginalization from from the main discourse or the main narrative and the main conversation and I think some of that must be quite disempowering so it might be must be terribly difficult to to be um, a person of color and be a, a climate activist because you've got this double hurdle sometimes to get over exactly you know black lives matter points to structural racism and disadvantage so there's now a huge rise in consciousness a lot of organizations of goodwill have put on statements of support for black lives matter on their websites and so on backed up by policy and strategy and saying that we are now going to open up the next level we're not just going to do these nice things about just being nice to black people and so on no get them into positions of leadership and power get them onto working groups, onto advisory groups, committees, leaders in campaigns, CEOs in organizations and so on. That will be a completely different picture when it happens. I think the other thing that is really wonderful is that the awareness that is at such a high and emotional level at, at the moment is actually dragging along in this path that is actually widening and so on. All kinds of a consciousness of inequality so that we're going to have the addressing of inequality right across a whole spectrum of things beyond just racism, because everything multiplies. You know, there are black people who are disabled, black people who are very poor, black people who are queer, and so all those layers and layers that multiply within inequality, and all of it must be addressed in order for us to move forward. Yeah, and some would say we have a poor track record on this because we've been arguing about gender equality for, for you know, the last 50 or 60 years, particularly since, you know, the Equal Pay Act back in the 50s. And yet we're nowhere near gender equality and representation in, in large organisations or even in, you know, positions of power. So this is a, you know, we've got some way to, to go. Do you feel that this, the, the energy behind Black Lives Matter is kind of mobilising a bigger movement, though? Do you feel that there's actually, it's giving almost an extra boost, if you like, to some of those arguments that we've been, been making for some time, whether it's around gender equality or, or, or environmental justice? The thing is, with Black Lives Matter and, and COVID and uh, climate change and so on, the interesting thing is that the relationships are being made. For example, with the pandemic, people now actually have heard about, because they're more serious about scientists speaking now, so they've heard about the effect of environmental encroachment and the pushing of wildlife and people together, and the way we treat domestic animals, crowding them together, and so on, are creating pandemics. So they make the link between climate and between COVID. And then the other thing is a link between equality and social conditions and environment. So making those things and the fantastically urgent issues in front of us. COVID is urgent, climate change is urgent, equality of urgent. And then that sense of urgency, I think, has a huge energy that makes me, even in these very dark times, more optimistic that we are now going to do it because Honestly speaking, climate change is telling us, you don't do this, you're all going to die. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. There's no negotiation. <laughs> this time there's no negotiation. Yeah. Yeah, there's no vaccine for that. So, Apra, do you feel, I mean, you're, you know, 
with all due respect to Judy, you are younger than, than both of us. Um, do you feel there's a sense of kind of outrage and energy amongst young people? And is that what's motivating perhaps some of the, the, the decisions that younger people are making, whether it's activism through things like um, Extinction Rebellion or whether it's through your perhaps, what you know, typically known as Gen Z buying choices, I mean, choosing to buy things for sustainable suppliers, choosing to consume less. Do you feel a sense of energy or are young people just overwhelmed by the amount of stuff that they have to deal with? Um, I think it's a bit of both. I think that if we didn't care, it would mean that we didn't value our lives because whereas before for other generations, it may have been um, like this is maybe 30 years. It's still as pressing because, you know, that's grandchildren, things like that. Now that's like we might not when we're 30 recognize the world at all. So um, it's more like a, a duty rather than a choice per se, because um, as Judy said, we could not be here. So that's that's kind of what drives us. And as well, um, it is overwhelming because because of the internet, we suddenly can see all the injustices in one go and we don't know what to choose, how we should help. But it makes us feel powerful as well because we don't have to leave home to help someone who's thousands of miles away. So yeah, it's, it's a mixture of urgency and just that maybe we have to be more empathetic because we can't say we don't know anymore, which was, I, can, I think was what happened with the Black Lives Matter movement. People before were not really willing to talk about racism in an open way. But unfortunately, after um, George Floyd's murder, people couldn't say anymore, like, I, like, I don't see colour or things like that. Um, so yeah, yeah, we could no longer pretend it wasn't happening, could we? I'm really intrigued what you you just said there about the kind of the power of the digital communication because a lot of the issues that my generation got upset about, we went out and protested on the streets, and I'm sure Judy they were the same. You know, we went out, we had a placard, we had a sit-in, we made our voices heard, and I often hear people similar sort of age to me, and I'm not admitting how old I am on the podcast, um, saying, you know, oh, well, there's Gen Z, young people, they're snowflakes, they don't care, they don't protest, we never see them out, we never see them taking to the streets. And I think the youth strike, climate strikes for justice were really put paid to that narrative that actually people don't care, young people don't care. But it's also, I think, that you do a lot of your activism in a very different way, don't you? You do it by engaging in big digital campaigns and big, you know, activities in a way that, that perhaps those of us who are used to getting a placard and marching down Whitehall wouldn't know how to do. I agree. I think that um, the fact that we had the internet meant we could even know about the issues a lot more quickly, which meant that we could go to the protests a lot more quickly. There were more of us. Um, So definitely, I think there's a lot you can learn from Instagram um, about social justice issues, which I don't think other generations had so, Daisy, you've really been out there on the front line, haven't you, as an, an XR protester? Um, you know, we've been talking about, you know, how active young people are and whether activism is is confined to the digital space for for what for what those of us who are a bit older call Gen Z, which is rather patronising. So, apologies, um, but that's not the case, is it? Because XR's really unlocked a lot of very visible on the street activism amongst young people. What's your experience been of of, of being there? Yeah, definitely. It has opened up a space to engage in physical activism as young people. Um, actually, statistically, I think the, um, there was a study that said the average XR rebel is a 30-year-old um, college-educated woman. Um, and that is the majority of our statistics um, saying towards. Um, so I, I do think that it does create a space for people, especially within, um, so 
when I first joined XR, I was actually the beginnings of XR Youth. And I worked primarily in there when I first joined. And that was creating a space actually just for young people to be able to understand as young people the issues that we face and how we can like get past it as well. So um, I think XR, in a weird way, it encompasses so much, especially through our community groups. This is interesting that we're having this discussion with you because this is the Peel podcast. So we're essentially talking about law and a lot of our um, audience will be lawyers or young lawyers or aspiring lawyers. But one of the defining features of XR is a willingness to break the law and if necessary, break the law to the point of being arrested and going to prison. So so how would you balance the, the, the kind of the energy and the demands of the campaign around XR with, you know, perhaps what people might consider to be a more conservative sort of law abiding, wishing to change the laws from within approach that Peel might be advocating. Yeah, I think, I think, um, so, so within XR, there is like this theory called movement of movements. And the whole idea is that us as XR, we kind of have taken this like, you know, civil disobedience element of the environmental movement as a large, but that doesn't mean that the work should just be um, civil disobedience. The fact that all of us are doing so many different ways, um, that's how we create change. We can do it together, um, but we're just using different tactics that feel truer to us. Like um, some of my work is actually in like political advocacy and I ran for parliament um, as well. And that is me going, okay, I see like there is a political need to fight within the system as well. Um, so I think it is just allowing the fluidity of all different types of tactics to create social change. I mean, we've been talking a little bit about that intersectionality between race and, and, and climate. And do you feel that there's that movements like XR are you know, open and welcoming to people of colour and people from ethnic minority communities, or are they very much spearheaded by kind of the, the white middle class? No, I think um, I think we're kind of like the, the forgotten souls within XR. Um, a lot of people, especially ethnic minority people, don't tend to come to the front line. And I think it is, it is because disproportionately, especially from, um, you know, external forces, we are the ones who face the most... Um, the most abuse in in all honesty like um you know i'm a spokesperson for xr and a lot of my white counterparts don't get the same amount of hate on social media as i do as a black woman and majority of the time they're not even hating me because i'm talking about the environment they're hating me because i'm young i'm a woman and i'm black um so it's kind of like this is where um i feel like there is loads so many people of diverse backgrounds in xr but a lot of the time we're too scared to be the forward, you know, full face of uh, the movement. So I, I do think that we we should like um, acknowledge that there is diversity within XR and has it been done well every single time? No, um, <laughs> we're a movement, we're a very young movement, we're two years old and we're learning how to grow and mature um, at the same time as being quite large as well. Um, but I, I feel well, global, like- global actually, really exactly. <laughs> Yeah, um, I feel yeah, I feel that it would be discrediting if uh, we don't acknowledge the diversity within us. Mm. And Judy, this helps back to a point you made earlier, wasn't it? That we've had a law against murder 
for, for a very long time, and yet it was perfectly acceptable for a black person to be murdered in the street and that for them to go viral on social media. So, so the law doesn't always protect us, um, particularly if, if, if you're from an ethnic minority community or, or a disadvantaged community. And there's a real problem there, isn't there? Because we're failing to protect the planet, but we're also failing to protect our activists who support the planet and are campaigning for the planet. Yes, I often say that, you know, at the heart of all this, it is a moral and spiritual failure, both on the nature front, because we don't care about nature. We can damage it in any you know, degree we want because it's not enough care for and love for it. And the same for people. If we don't care enough for people, we allow them to be murdered, allow them to be discriminated against and so on. So it is that level of spiritual and more moral outrage that we need in society, which we're getting now. It is a moment in which we can push things forward because of what's happening. And I think the digital dimension is important and going to be increasingly important. Now, despite all this dark stuff we've been you know, bombarded with, with COVID and so on, what has happened digitally is quite wonderful. You know? There have been people who said they would never use the computer. They don't like it and they don't like being seen like you and me now at the moment. So they've all completely adapted because it's the only way they can see their relatives. And suddenly they have relaxed into it. And a lot of conferences that used to be charging for money to go and so on, they're now all free right across the world. We have now people like myself attending conferences in the States, in Australia, all over the place. And when you open up a conference nowadays, instead of the 50 or 100 people attend face to face, Greenpeace recently, one of their conferences had over a thousand people, you know, and this is actually bringing people, especially young people who are so at ease with digital stuff and so on. Besides the protesting on the streets and, and so on, you can only do that to a certain extent. It's then afterwards, the solid work, networking, informing people, giving them the facts, coming together to campaign even more and so on. All that, the digital part of it and building up those networks and so on, is going to be a real force in the days to come. And do you think that will create that movement for change? Because we've been talking about the need for there to be people in leadership roles, um, you know, both women and members of ethnic minority communities who are there as, as, as leaders that others can see so we can organisations can walk the walk as well as talking the talk around some of these issues. Do you think this opening up might be a way of making that more possible? Because we're Absolutely. actually, we're removing a barrier, aren't we, to people getting engaged and being able to have their voices heard? Yes, for example, we used to be so media independent, you know, if you don't get in the Guardian or the Telegraph and so on, you basically had it, which is my organisations like, you know, XR and Greenpeace and so on, not so theatrical. You know, because the papers are about sensationalism. You give them a good photograph, you give them something drastically outrageous, they'll put you on. But if you're just simply serious, you have a very bad time. You're just not seen and heard. But with social media, with conferences and so on, this is a level at which the leaders can have their own voices on a grand scale like never before. And is the law keeping pace? I mean, you know, essentially we're here talking about the need to change, um, you know, for environmental activism, but we're really talking about it in the context of law. Do you feel that the law's keeping pace with that, days and APRA? I mean, are we actually getting new laws enacted or are we making sure that the laws we have are being carried through to the right degree in order to protect both people and planet? 
Um, yeah, I, I don't. Yeah, obviously, I don't. I don't think the laws are totally adequate. Um, I think the laws, a lot of the time, they kind of it is quite black and white. It's you've broken the law, or you haven't, rather than actually like understanding the nuance of life. And I think this is where extinction rebellion protests become really interesting because a lot of the time far majority of our membership are law-abiding people in their everyday everyday life but they're saying i am going to put the government in a dilemma you are either going to arrest me for doing something that's right and morally just or you're not going to you know and i think this is where the law becomes slightly interesting when it's used as a tactic of um of disruption and that is like a level of disruption on its own putting the government into that dilemma to think about the ideas between like what is law and what is moral and just yeah and do you think we might have kind of lost our way a bit morally and spiritually i mean because it does feel a little as if we're adrift i mean we look at some of the the leaders of the in you know in the current western democracies you know possibly across the pond um and you know in our own leadership where there does seems to be behaviors that we can't as a nation necessarily trust so do you think we are slightly adrift and can we use the law and the traditional, um, you know, the, the wisdom and the and the slowness, if I may say that, of law to help us get back on track? Or, or do we just need to, to have much more activism and say, actually, it's time for us to have a kind of mini rebellion and revolt. We need to make new laws that are more appropriate. Yeah, definitely. I'm all up for new laws. <laughs> because, um, like even like, for example, like COVID, like this is a very personal opinion of mine, but um, I feel like in the last couple months of most majority of 2020, our government has failed us to the point of where I see it as manslaughter. They allowed loads of people to die over the whole year, especially affecting working class communities, people of color, um, disabled people, all the people that are most vulnerable in our society already. They allowed them to die. They could have done something and they chose not to. But where are they being taken in handcuffs in the same way that activists are for fighting for life? You know, and this is where the law kind of becomes uh, sometimes just a bit inadequate, in all honesty. Um, where where are the handcuffs for Shell? You are destroying nature, destroying the uh, inhabitants and, and places that people live. You know, where where are where are the laws then? Um, and this is kind of where I do believe that we need laws to acknowledge ecocide and acknowledge that we can't keep like destroying the earth and saying that's okay. You know, but. Um, like prioritizing human life over that and even not even all human life some human life. Judy do you are you hopeful or do you feel that we might be a bit morally and spiritually adrift as nations? I think that as nations when you look upon it from the point of view of what governments are doing and so on it is simply not enough and we live in democracies this is where as people we take on the responsibility we are in a democracy we have to voice what we want and push it forward to work. You know, a law can be there and can be not enforced. And again, it's up to the people to point out the law is there. We want it enforced. It is outrage that makes certain laws actually become active. And the other side of it is, of course, again, beyond enforcement, outrage and moral and spiritual stance and so on can put a position for new laws to be made. So we can't do without law. It's part of the system, but part of democracy, it is the people that finally have to take the responsibility of what our country really is. 
Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And and do you so so really the role of something like Peel is to inspire and and motivate um people, whether they're they're law students or or non-law students, as 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 you both are, to get involved and to do something about making the law fit for for, for us as people in the 21st century and fit for our planet. And that's quite a big agenda, but I have no doubt that Peel will rise to that challenge. Um we we should bring this fascinating conversation to a close, but I just wanted to ask to ask our guests: Do you have um, a call to action that you'd want to share with 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 listeners? And and what would be the the one thing that you'd like people perhaps to take away from this conversation, Judy? Well, I would like us to look forward to a green recovery. I mean, that is the big topic at the moment. And it is the solution. What else are we going to do? You know, the green recovery will bring with it, for example, especially for the next generation, new green jobs. So that instead of just campaigning or whatever for what we want, with a new green job, you're working full time for the environment and for people. That is where we need to look for in the future. Positive as always. How about you, Days? Do you have a kind of call to action for 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 PO listeners? Yeah, I, I hark back to regenerative cultures. It's, I think it's one of the most beautiful things I've actually learned within XR, learning about how our human interactions have actually changed the way that we relate to the earth. When we learn how to use and abuse one another, we will do the same to the earth. And once we start creating those behaviours and starting to prioritise uh, care and duty to one another and compassion and empathy, um, we're going to do the same to the earth. And that's when things will become groundbreaking. Our actions will be acts of love um, and acts of loves won't, you know, um, foster negativity and won't foster harm. And this is, you know, why we're asking for quite a large like societal change. Now we're at a moment of immense change, aren't we, with COVID anyway? So we do have this opportunity to rethink and perhaps reset the dial a little bit and actually look at, at being much more in harmony with our planet. And from a legal perspective, of course, we've got those instruments already in place through things like the rights of Mother Earth and the Bolivian Declaration and Earth's jurisprudence. So we have some we have some really good precedents there um, that we can perhaps, you know, turn to to put it within that label framework. Apra, what would be your kind of cool for action or your your kind of summation of where we've got to um i would say that even though this has probably been one of the hardest you know parts of human history even though we've been at home a lot of people's lives have been overturned and a lot of people have finally managed to understand that people around them have been having very different lives than they thought um as the black lives matter movement show um showed us but um i think ultimately this year has kind of showed us that we need to fight for our right to live um, not just to survive. Um, like we are allowed to say that we want to be on an earth that we can live on, that um, we have a say as to how we will raise our children and how their children will, you know, we we are basically saying that we don't just want to survive, we want to thrive. And so, yeah, that's what I'd say. Yeah. Thriving, not surviving. That would be a great motto, I think, to take to take out from this podcast and to take forward. A huge thank you to all of you, to our guests, Judy and today's, and to APRA for co-hosting on behalf of Peel. It's a fascinating discussion and one I know that we will continue as, as time goes on because there's so much more to say and the job is not yet done, I think it's fair to say. But very many thanks for, for, for joining us, Judy and Days. Thank you for your time today. Thank you. Thank you. 
Yeah, and thank you to APRA and to Peel for this series of podcasts. You can find out more about Peel by following them on Twitter or via their website, peel.org.uk. And you can catch up on other episodes of this podcast series, um, either there or via your favourite podcast app, where you can subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future discussions. Um, to find out more about Judy's work, visit her website, judylingwon.com. Thank you so much for listening and goodbye. You've been listening to Just Environmental Law, the podcast that debates environmental law and justice for everyone. Brought to you by Peel UK and PlanetPod. Follow Peel on Twitter at Peel UK or visit our website www.peel.org.uk. Thanks for listening.